Chapter Thirty of the Seven Secrets by William Lequeux. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tom Weiss. Chapter Thirty, Sir Bernard's Decision. For fully a week, I saw nothing of Amber. Sir Bernard was unwell and remained down at Hove. Therefore, I was compelled to attend to his practice. There were several serious cases, the patients being persons of note thus I was kept very busy. My friend's silence was puzzling. I wrote to him, but received no response. A wire to his office in the city elicited the fact that Mr. Jevons was out of town. Probably he was still pursuing the inquiry he had so actively taken up. Nevertheless I was dissatisfied that he should leave me so entirely in the dark as to his intentions and discoveries. Ethelwyn came to town for the day, and I spent several hours shopping with her. She was strangely nervous, and all the old spontaneous gaiety seemed to have left her. She had read in the papers of a curious connection between the death of the man Lane and that of her unfortunate sister, therefore our conversation was mainly upon the river mystery. Sometimes she seemed ill at ease with me, as though fearing some discovery. Perhaps, however, it was merely my fancy. I loved her, she was all the world to me, and yet in her eyes I seemed to read some hidden secret which she was endeavoring, with all the power at her command, to conceal. In such circumstances there was bound to arise between us a certain reserve that we had not before known. Her conversation was carried on in a mechanical manner, as though distracted by her inner thoughts, and when, after having tea together in Bond Street, we drove to the station, and I saw her off on her return to Nenneford, my mind was full of darkest apprehensions. Yes, that interview convinced me more than ever that she was in some manner cognizant of the truth. The secret existence of old Mr. Courtney, the man who I myself had pronounced dead, was the crowning point of the strange affair, and yet I felt by some inward intuition that this fact was not unknown to her. All the remarkable events of that moonlit night when I had followed husband and wife along the river bank came back to me, and I saw vividly the old man's face, haggard and drawn, just as it had been in life. Surely there could be no stranger current of events than those which formed the seven secrets. They were beyond explanation, all of them. I knew nothing. I had certainly seen results, but I knew not their cause. Nitrate of amyl was not a drug which a costermonger would select with a view to committing suicide. Indeed, I dare say, few of my readers, unless they are doctors or chemists, have ever before heard of it. Therefore my own conclusion, fully endorsed by the erratic ambler, was that the poor fellow had been secretly poisoned. Nearly a fortnight passed, and I heard nothing of ambler. He was still out of town. Day by day passed, but nothing of note transpired. Sir Bernard was still suffering from a slight touch of sciatica at home, and on visiting him one Sunday I found him confined to his bed, grumbling and peevish. He was eccentric in his miserly habits and his hatred of society, beyond doubt, and the absurdities which his enemies attributed to him were not altogether unfounded. But he had, at all events, the rare quality of entertaining for his profession a respect nearly akin to enthusiasm. 
Indeed, according to his views, the faculty possessed almost infallible qualities. In confidence he had more than once admitted to me that certain of his colleagues practicing in Harley Street were amazing donkeys, but he would never have allowed anyone else to say so. From the moment a man acquired that diploma which gave him the right over life and death, that man became, in his eyes, an august personage for the world at large. It was a crime, he thought, for a patient not to submit to his decision, and certainly it must be admitted that his success in the treatment of nervous disorders had been most remarkable. "'You were at that lecture by Debouton of Paris the other day,' he exclaimed to me suddenly, while I was seated at his bedside describing the work I had been doing for him in London. "'Why didn't you tell me you were going there?' I went, quite unexpectedly, with a friend. "'With whom?' "'Ambler Jevons.' "'Oh, that detective fellow,' laughed the old physician. "'Well,' he added, "'it was all very interesting, wasn't it?' "'Very, especially your own demonstrations. I had no idea that you were in correspondence with Debutant.' He laughed, then with a knowing look said, "'Ah, my dear fellow, nowadays it doesn't do to tell anyone of your own researches. The only way is to spring it upon the profession as a great triumph, just as Cuck did his cure for tuberculosis.' one must create an impression, if only with a quack remedy. The day of the steady plotter is past. It's all hustle, even in medicine. Well, you certainly did make an impression, I said, smiling. Your experiments were a revelation to the profession. They were talking of them at the hospital only yesterday. Hmm, they thought me an old fogey, eh? But, you see, I've been keeping pace with the times, boy. A man to succeed nowadays must make a boom with something, it matters not what. For years I've been experimenting in secret, and some day I will show them further results of my researches, and they will come upon the profession like a thunderclap staggering belief. The old man chuckled to himself as he thought of his scientific triumph, and how one day he would give forth to the world a truth hitherto unsuspected. We chatted for a long time, mostly upon technicalities which cannot interest the reader, until suddenly he said, I'm getting old, boy. These constant attacks I have render me unfit to go to town and sit in judgment on that pack of silly women who rush to consult me whenever they have a headache or an erring husband. I think that very soon I ought to retire. I've done sufficient hard work all the years since I was a locum down in Oxfordshire. I'm worn out. Oh, no, I said, you mustn't retire yet. If you did, the profession would lose one of its most brilliant men. Enough of compliments, he snapped, turning wearily on his pillow. I'm sick to death of it all. Better to retire while I have fame than to outlive it. When I give up, you will step into my shoes, Boyd, and it will be a good thing for you. Such a suggestion was quite unexpected. I had never dreamed that he contemplated handing over his practice to me. Certainly it would be a good thing for me if he did. It would give me a chance such as few men ever had. True, I was well known to his patients and had worked hard in his interest, but that he intended to hand his practice over to me I had never contemplated. Hence I thanked him most heartily. Yes, Sir Bernard had been my benefactor always. All the women know you, he went on in his snappish way. You are the only man to take my place. They would come to you, but not to a new man. All I can hope is that they won't bore you with their domestic troubles, as they have done me, 
and he smiled. Oh, I said, more than once I too have been compelled to listen to the domestic secrets of certain households. It really is astounding what a woman will tell her doctor, even though he may be young. The old man laughed again. Ah, he sighed, you don't know women as I know them, Boyd. You've got your experience to gain. Then you'll hold them in abhorrence, just as I do. They call me a woman-hater, he grunted. Perhaps I am, for I've had cause to hold the feminine mind and the feminine passion equally in contempt. Well, I laughed, there's not a man in London who is more qualified to speak from personal experience than yourself, so I anticipate a pretty rough time when I've had years of it as you have. And yet you want to marry, he snapped, looking me straight in the face. Of course you love Ethelwyn Mivart. Every man at your age loves. It is a malady that occurs in the teens and declines in the thirties. I should have thought that your affection of the heart had been about cured. It is surely time it was. It is true that I love Ethelwyn, I declared, rather annoyed, and I intend to marry her. If you do, then you'll spoil all your chances of success. The class of women who are my patients would much rather consult a confirmed bachelor than a man who has a jealous wife hanging to his coattails. The doctor's wife must always be a long-suffering person. I smiled, and then our conversation turned upon his proposed retirement, which was to take place in six months' time. I returned to London by the last train, and on entering my room found a telegram from Ambler making an appointment to call on the following evening. The message was dated from Eastbourne, and was the first I had received from him for some days. Next morning I sat in Sir Bernard's consulting room, as usual, receiving patients, and the afternoon I spent on the usual hospital round. About six o'clock Ambler arrived, drank a brandy and soda with a reflective air, and then suggested that we might dine together at the Cavour, a favorite haunt of his. At table I endeavored to induce him to explain his movements and what he had discovered. But he was still disinclined to tell me anything. He worked always in secret, and until facts were clear said nothing. It was a peculiarity of his to remain dumb even to his most intimate friends concerning any inquiries he was making. He was a man of moods, with an active mind and a still tongue, two qualities essential to the successful unraveling of mysteries. Having finished dinner we lit cigars and took a cab back to my rooms. On passing along Harley Street it suddenly occurred to me that in the morning I had left a case of instruments in Sir Bernard's consulting room and that I might require them for one of my patients if called that night. Therefore I stopped the cab, dismissed it, and knocked at Sir Bernard's door. Ford, on opening it, surprised me by announcing that his master, whom I had left in bed on the previous night, had returned to town suddenly, but was engaged. Ambler waited in the hall while I passed along to the door of the consulting room with the intention of asking permission to enter, as I always did when Sir Bernard was engaged with the patient. On approaching the door, however, I was startled by hearing a woman's voice raised in angry reproachful words followed immediately by the sound of a scuffle and then a stifled cry. Without further hesitation I turned the handle. The door was locked. End of chapter 30 Recording by Tom Weiss TomsAudiobooks.com